God, thank you for the opportunity to just be together on a beautiful fall day. Um, we say this a lot, but we are, I'm, God, I'm just aware that we come into this room, this uh, carpeted older gymnasium, um, with a lot on our shoulders, a lot on our minds, a lot on our hearts. And the goal isn't to just check off a religious practice. The goal is to allow your spirit in this, the scriptures to wrestle, wrestle empire out of us. That we would see what our true allegiances are and reorient our true allegiance to you. And this is a passage, God, that you have given us to help us do that and show us the way forward, we pray. Amen. Well, we are in uh, a series on the book of Revelation, and uh, it's a tricky one, and especially with some of the news that we experienced yesterday. And um, we are, um, as a community, whenever war breaks out, whenever terrorism hits, um, that is not, um, that is anti the heart of God and the violence and the bloodshed and the, the rage and the retribution and all those things. Um, and so many are taking these events I've been seeing on social media, many are taking the events that happened yesterday as, uh, see, it's happening. And I just want us to pump the brakes. And I want us to reimagine what the book of Revelation is. Um, and some of you are probably really frustrated with that statement, and that's okay. The goal isn't for us to agree on whether Revelation is a predictive prophecy for us today. Um, the goal is to see the book of Revelation as something that takes our imagination and refocuses it on who God is. And so I'll get into a little bit of that today, but we are praying for um, the people who um, are just in absolute misery and pain and lost loved ones. We're praying for the Spirit of God and the peace of God to fall on that region uh, immediately. Um, and so today, let's get into chapter 4 of Revelation. Now, if you are new to our conversation, we're four weeks in. So there's been a lot of background and there's stuff I can't cover. But the thing that we can cover and continue to reiterate is this is an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. It's apocalyptic in the sense that it is a genre of literature that is highly symbolic, and it is meant to arouse your imagination. It's prophetic, not in the sense that it's predictive, but it's prophetic in the sense that it is an encouragement to the generation receiving the letter to remain faithful and allegiant to Jesus. And it's a letter because it was addressed to seven flesh and blood real house churches in Asia Minor. And for a lot of us, now here's the thing, some of you have, some of you have sent questions in, so what I'm trying to do with the questions is um, answer them as we go. There's one particular question um, that has to do with a certain way of reading Scripture that I highlighted a couple weeks ago called dispensationalism, and, and we're going to talk about that. I'm just trying to figure out when, because it's a lot. So I just want you to know if you're interested in that conversation, it is coming, but I'm going to try to answer some questions as we go. And, and here's the thing. For a lot of us, we come into a community many ways fully formed on, on what we think. Like we come in with some opinions, um, not only about the Bible and how to interpret the Bible, but also we come in with opinions based on our life. 
based on how our experience has been, and, and we have takes on certain things. One of the things we have a hard time doing is allowing our assumptions to be interrogated by Scripture. That's very difficult for us. Um, and so we have this kind of stance of like, here's what I believe. And sometimes it's just a lot easier to find a church that agrees with what I believe than it is to let Scripture interrogate what we believe. And we want to hold our assumption. This is like our goal here. We want to hold our assumptions to what Scripture might say, up to what Scripture might say. And if it calls that into question, if it calls into question our assumptions, then that's not a bad thing. That's like a really good thing. Uh, It's good to have you guys join us. I'm just messing with you. Hey, football's fun. I know, but football is also fun. It's a statement. It's a true statement. I just thought, I'm just kidding. Um, So here's the thing. Jesus dismantled the Judaism of his disciples. And that is a weird statement to say. But when Jesus was on earth, one of the things he said was, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Do you remember that statement? And, and he didn't uh, abolish anything. He actually built things. And, and what happened was some of the things that they were holding on to just fell away because they were no longer important. And so to think 2,000 years later, we have perfected Christianity as if Jesus doesn't have anything else to say to us is, I don't think, a healthy posture, right? And so the goal of the series is not to get all of us to agree on kind of what Revelation is and all that kind of stuff, but it's to be open to exploring the book with an open mind, because I think for a lot of people it has been the source of a great deal of fear and not hope. And that people have used this book to kind of... uh, push people in their lives towards a very fearful um, uh, unveiling of history. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to read chapter 4. So if you're going to follow along, we're going to read, we're going to do some background, we're going to read again, then we're done. Simple like that. There's just a few minutes in between. So this is one of the seven liturgical passages, worship scenes, that we see in Revelation. And seven is a really important number. Does anybody remember why? Perfection, completion, fullness, yes. So there's a reason why John's using the number seven, okay? And it's to, uh, to, to show us what perfection and completeness is. And it starts in chapter four, verse one. After this I looked, and there before me was a a door standing open in heaven, Um, something that we find totally congruent with Ezekiel 1. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Remember that phrase, in the Spirit? It's four times throughout the book of Revelation. Sometimes people think that it's actually the books being split up into these four sections. Um, And there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Now, this is an incredibly Jewish way of talking about God, not mentioning God by name. See, the Jews of John's day, would they wouldn't pronounce or write the divine name of God. And so this is a very Old Testament way that we see like a throne scene, but it's very circumspect way of talking about the Almighty God on the throne, okay? Uh, Verse 3, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. These were colors you would see on uh, the breastplate of a high priest. Um, This is very Old Testament imagery imagery stuff. And then it says, A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling encircling the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, 
and seated on them were 24 elders. Now, loads of guesses here. Um, some people think it's the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Um, some people think it's the 24 orders of the Old Testament priests. Circle of advisors, we don't know. But there's interesting parallels with something we'll get into in a couple of weeks. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Um, eight times in the scripture, in the, in the book, we're going to see somebody dressed in white or people dressed in white. And, and then these crowns weren't like you would, uh, they're not like, you remember the Burger, Burger King crowns, you know, with the, you know, don't think crowns like uh, kingly stuff, but more of like a, um, crown of victory, um, so like a wreath, a victor's wreath. Think that. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. So in Exodus, in Ezekiel, and Daniel, when God appears, there's lightning and thunder. Uh, nothing shocking there. But what's interesting are the coins that we found that we like I was a part of it, that archaeologists have found that actually have a picture of Zeus with lightning. And that there, there's conversation around the worship of Zeus being uh, with thunder. Um, so two things are happening for the people hearing this. Remember, our Old Testament imagery and Roman propaganda, like the worship of Roman gods and emperors. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. This is one of the questions that was submitted was, can you talk more about the seven spirits of God? And like we talked about earlier, it's like the number of completion. It's this, the idea here from John is this is the wholeness and complete fullness of the spirit of God. Okay. Also in front of the the front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. I read one commentary that talked about Solomon's temple had something in front of it called the sea, which was this beautiful pool that was clear. It's crystal clear, and they kept, they kept it clear all the time. Um, in the center around the throne were four living creatures. Uh, we meet these in Ezekiel, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. So think of like your mom when you were little, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they, how did she see that, right? Like, no, but this is an image borrowed from Ezekiel as well. Uh, verse 7, uh, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, un even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is straight out of Isaiah and other parts of the Old Testament. And it turns out it was actually very similar language to the worship of Zeus uh, we have recordings, in a, uh, not recordings, um, inscriptions. Of, uh, that'd be wild, right? <laughs> um, we have inscriptions of some of this worship language. And then verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And this is what you would do if you were little country was the uh, servant of a, of a larger nation. This is called a vassal. If you were a vassal to another nation, meaning your country was, in a sense, um, it's kind of like how the mafia worked. Like you were given protection if you served the more stronger family. Um, that's how it worked. So if you're, if you're king, if, you're, if your little nation was subservient to another nation, your king would lay their crown in front of the king of the more stronger nation. That makes sense. You guys, are, you guys need coffee. You guys need, are you guys with me? Yes. 
cool. We're almost done with this part, okay? Uh, And then it says, they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. Now, this is one of the most famous scenes in the whole book of Revelation. And it is the picture of God we get Um, that I feel is so needed for people like us. And some of you are like, what do you mean people like us? Well, we live in a time where God can easily be portrayed as our best buddy and our cosmic boyfriend. I mean, some of the worship music I'm saying some of it, (laughs) has this cosmic boyfriend feel to it. (laughs) God God is our therapist or our life coach or our self-help guru. Um, That God exists to help me actualize myself, right? But the picture we get in Revelation is is an entire universe arrayed around the throne of God. And that's a picture that we need. And I just want to say that there are reasons why Revelation gives us this picture. And so we have to ask, why would this picture be so significant to John's audience? Why was this vision included in the letter to these churches? Remember, it was written to them, not to us. It's for us, but it was written to them. Let's just be really clear on that. So what we're going to do is a little background. It's time for some nerdy history, Caesar background. Now, there's been this thing floating around about people being all into Roman history. Have you heard this lately? And I'm like, great. That had to come out during this. Okay, whatever. So we meet Julius Caesar. We all know Julius Caesar. Some of us do, um, because some of you haven't gotten there yet. You get there? Okay, good. All right. You're like, make me go play football. Um, Julius Caesar, Pompey, the Civil War. Um, They are headed for Civil War. Julius Caesar is assassinated 44 BC. It's the Ides of what? Ides of March, yes. And prior to his assassination, he he adopts Octavian and makes Octavian his royal heir. This is really important because this kind of sets up all the things that we're about to read and experience. So Julius Caesar is assassinated And very soon after Julius Caesar is assassinated, there's a comet that appears, and, you know, as you would, you would claim, if you were uh, Octavian, you would claim that that is the sign that your father is deified, is divine. And we've not we, but there have been coins found about this comet in the deification of Augustus, I mean, of of Julius Caesar. Now, Julius um, has been assassinated, and to maintain kind of a hold on the empire, Octavian throws games to commemorate his father and the divinity of his father, saying that he's ascended to the right hand of Zeus. And Octavian claims proof of this deity, of this deification of his father. And so this continues, 20 years of civil war. Initially, it was Julius and Pompey. Now it's about Caesar's allies and Caesar's assassins, and they are at war together. And it boils down to what you know of as Octavian in Italy and Mark Antony and Elizabeth Taylor in Egypt. And if you got that reference, you're old. Um, Octavian is battling Mark Antony and Cleopatra, played by Elizabeth Taylor. 
And the civil war is finally decided in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. And Mark, Mark Antony and Cleopatra are, uh, are defeated, and Octavian is victorious. And the thing you need to know is that the great gift that Octavian brings the empire, he gives the empire, is peace. 20 years of civil war, and there is now peace. And Octavian is given the title Augustus, which is Latin for one who is divine, one who is illustrious. And in Greek, he's given the term Sebastos, which is one who is to be worshipped. Okay? And a command goes out to include in his name all the vows and the prayers and the, and the offering of sacrifices to Caesar. Okay? Caesar Augustus. Now, as you can imagine, there was a massive acclamations flowing towards Caesar at this time. Um, Augustan poet Horace, who he, I mean, usually you get kind of uh, remembered and, and there's songs and poetry about you after you die, but um, this happened while he was alive. It says, upon you, Augustus, however, while still living among us, we already bestow divine honors, set up altars to swear by in your name, and confess that nobody like you will arise hereafter or has ever arisen before now. That's like, it's big language. Now, here's what's so huge you need to understand. And this gives so much context to the book of Revelation. The seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation come from a region called Asia Minor. And Asia Minor was conquered by Rome nearly 100 years before Augustus. But the problem is, is those Asian cities backed Mark Antony and Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> during the Civil War. Now, Octavian wins. <laughs> he wasn't the guy you were fighting with. What do you do to not get stomped on? Well, you begin to use propaganda, and the region unifies and rushes to honor Caesar Augustus to show their loyalty. And they band together, and they are like falling over each other to figure out how they could be, uh, how they could show loyalty to Caesar. So there was a contest, um, and his birthday. They decided to to create uh, the beginning of a, the new year. They changed the whole calendar to to revolve around Caesar's birthday, and so they they make their whole calendar revolve around his birthday. And there's this. Um, this kind of edict, this, this scroll that goes out. In, in, it's called the League of Asian Cities. I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to hear some of this crazy language that you're used to hearing tied to Jesus. Listen to this. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling in, into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year, whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the emperor Augustus whom it providence filled with strength for the welfare of men, and who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order, having become God manifest. Caesar has fulfilled all the hope of earlier times in surprising all the benefactors who preceded him, and whereas finally the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news, the euangelion concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Now, 
when there are shepherds out in a field at night keeping watch over their sheep and an angel of the Lord appears to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified but the angel said to them do not be afraid I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people Today, in the town of David, a Savior has actually been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He will be assigned to, here, this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in the major. And it goes on to talk about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. These are the angels are actually using this Caesar language to say, what you think is not reality. This is the new reality. The true Lord of the world is here. So we also have an inscription uh, from Myra of Lycia. It says, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Now, you're like, okay, we get it. Uh, there's more, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you're going to get it. So this is so important. The rush to love and honor Augustus opens the door to the gradual increase in something called the imperial cult. Okay? So this is just the beginning of something that begins to increase emperor after emperor. Okay? And this was an apparatus not only used to honor the traditional gods like Zeus and um, all the other ones, but to honor the emperors and their families as well, right? And you need to know it's not just Caesar pushing this, but Asia Minor, okay, is rushing to make sure that they were in good standing in the eyes of Caesar. This is very political, right? We've got to get behind this guy because if we don't, we're on the wrong end of the stick. So let me, let me show you a few words here that are really interesting. Uh, these are all words you're going to find in, uh, and, and, and phrases you're going to find in some of the histories, right? Uh, things like Son of God, Cosmic Savior, the God Augustus, Heaven's Shining Star, Caesar is Lord, or Kyrios is the, the word there. Um, the word Advent actually comes from the celebration of his birthday, 12 days. The Advent of Caesar Augustus. And the church, followers of Jesus, co-opted that word. Epiphany. The ecclesia is the groups of people that gathered around the imperial cult were called ecclesias, where we get the word church. Right? Perusia. This is, the, this is where we get this idea of the rapture, which we're going to talk about in November. I can't wait. Some of you are like, I can. But um, Caesar's coming into a city was called Perusia, in which Paul co-ops, co-ops and uses all this language to talk about Jesus' coming. And then we have building inscriptions that talk about Imperator Caesar, Son of God, Augustus, Savior, Builder of the city. And here's the big claim. The big gift that Caesar Augustus gave to the world was what? Peace. Pax Romana, which was Roman peace, which basically meant peace through strength. So good, good if you were on this good side, right? You were actually experiencing peace, but if, if you weren't, so we have actually have a picture of an altar to Augustus Caesar. And this isn't actually an altar. It's a rendering, a recreation of it. And this was placed in all these little Asian, Asia Minor cities that we read about in Revelation. You would actually come to this altar, burn incense, give gifts, now, the, the symbolism of this thing is insane, and there's pictures around it, and we're not going to get into all of that, but it, it's, it's incredible how revelation undercuts all of that worship, okay? 
bringer of peace. Um, there's this one inscription that we found that says this, the Romans are plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they are insatiable. If poor, they lust for domain. Not east, not west has sated them. So, we're almost done with the background. When we get to the seven cities in Revelation, there has been over 100 years of building emperor worship, starting with Caesar Augustus, building and building and building. After, after Augustus, there was Tiberius. Then there was Caligula, who was an interesting fella. Then we read about last uh, spring, we were in the book of Romans. Remember, Claudius expelled the Jews out of Rome. Claudius followed Caligula. Caligula. And then it was Nero. We read that Nero led them back, let the Jewish people back into Rome. But the problem was, is he burned two-thirds of the city to the ground and blamed it on the Christians. He killed Peter and Paul. He kicked out and burned alive Christians, and, and he, he would burn them alive at dinner parties and use them as torches. Then we have a few short-term emperors. They call this the year of the four emperors, and it and then there's the Flavian dynasty, which is Vespasian, his son Titus, and then Domitian. And Domitian, we're going to talk about in two weeks at length. You guys are like, I'm not going to be here. <laughs> but we're going to talk about Domitian because we believe that the book of Revelation was written during the time of Domitian. And by the time it was written, the worship of the emperor was deeply woven into every facet of Roman life, okay? So in Pergamum, these are the seven cities in the book of Revelation. In Pergamum, capital of Asia Minor, they had a temple to Zeus, they had a temple to Roma, they had an altar to Caesar Augustus, and they were first to be named Temple Warden, and which meant that they had this honor of being the first temple warden in all of Asia Minor. Ephesus had a temple to Roma and Julius Caesar, an altar to Augustus inside of the temple to Artemis, and they had a temple to Domitian. Smyrna, temple to Roma, Tiberius and the Roman Senate, Sardis, temple to Augustus, subsidized priesthood, um, in Laodicea, they were wealthy. We talked about them. They had an imperial altar to Domitian. Um, in Philadelphia, there was an imperial temple. And in Thyatira, there was an imperial altar and priesthood. Five out of the seven cities were temple warden cities. Meaning everything you did came through the worship of the gods and of Caesar. Whether it was economic or medicinal, whether whatever you did, went through them. And a letter that would go in a circle to house churches in the region that was utterly infected by this imperial cult was kind of a big deal. And we could spend hours talking about how much you needed to participate in the deification of the emperor and all the, all the things, and we're not going to get into all that. But they know of one person at least, and we read this in, the, in, in Revelation, that has been murdered by the local provincial council. And the crisis for some of the churches is that the persecution uh, would increase. And the crisis for some of the churches was that there was no persecution. And they totally fit into Roman worship. And we read about Balaam and Jezebel, which are Old Testament characters that they're, he's alluding to. And then we read about the Nicolaitans, which were a group of people that believed that you just kind of do both. You know, you got Jesus and you got everything else, and you just go along to get along. And the background of all of this was simply to say this. When you sat in one of these seven cities and you were a small, tiny house church, and you were socially beyond marginalized, and you were told not to participate in all the festivals and the holidays. 
And then you read this letter, and it's Jesus saying, I know what you're up to. And you have the Roman Empire and all the power that sits behind it. And you have persecution on one hand for some of them and kind of like a dull complacency on the other. And you imagine you're just this little house church and most of the little house churches were kind of poor except for the Laodiceans and we talked about about them last week. And you couldn't read. Most people couldn't read. And so everywhere you look, there was acclamation to the emperor. There's like this, people are falling all over themselves to worship the emperor and there's festivals and there's all this stuff. And every month, the birthday of Caesar is celebrated on the 23rd of every month and the processions and the the offering of incense, you would have to go out in front of your house and offer incense as the procession went by. And then we have this evidence of allowing of these allegiances to Caesar. This is actually something we found. I keep saying we. (laughs) Something that was found by human beings. It's this vow to Caesar. I'm going to read it to you. It's, It's from the third year of the 12th consulship of Caesar Augustus, son of a god. The following oath was taken by the inhabitants of of Patagonia and uh, the Roman businessmen dwelling among them. Listen to this vow. And this is Caesar Augustus. This isn't even Domitian yet. I swear by Jupiter, earth, sun, by all the gods and goddesses, and by Augustus himself that I will be loyal to Caesar Augustus and to his children and descendants all of my life in word and deed and thought, regardless, regarding his friends, whomever they regard, so that in the defense of their interests, I will spare neither body, soul, life, nor children. What was the big question on the minds of the Roman house churches? (laughs) Well, it wasn't the millennium. It, had, it, was, it wasn't like pre-trib, post-trib. <laughs> Is it possible to participate in the worship of Caesar and worship Jesus? That was on their minds. Revelation was written to answer this question. Propaganda everywhere, and it was getting worse. And you're sitting in your house church, and then all of a sudden, an emissary from John shows up. And imagine you just hear your little house church being talked about. And now there's degrees, there's all degrees in this, if you read about all seven house churches, there's degrees of them trying to be faithful. And then you get a picture The personal letter ends, and then you get a picture of the throne room at the center of the universe. And the news of this vision is that the emperor is not on it. And there's nothing in our experience as Western Americans that can picture what that, that could have meant. I mean, 30 years before, they lose Peter and Paul, Um, They have all this Old Testament imagery in their heads, and they have this understanding of this world around them that is just, just saturated with worship of the emperor. Now, what I want to do, background over, is I want to reread this throne room image. And I want to do it, I want you to, if you've, comfortable closing your eyes, take a deep breath. I'm going to reread these 11 verses, and I want you to picture all that background. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first creature, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was the face, had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Would you need 12 points of application after that? This is what the book of Revelation is intended to do. And the reason the writer uses Caesar language is to help the hearer know that it is impossible to worship both. Can I cross my fingers behind my back and burn incense to Caesar? Can I make a vow at the altar even though I don't mean it? Can I just go along to get along? The, the answer of the risen Jesus in all of his glory, walking among the seven churches, to the seven churches, is no, you can't. Is no, you can't. So the church sits within a powerful empire, the most powerful empire the world has ever known to that point, and that empire is set against them. And they are forced to sit and endure that suffering. And to hope. And this vision of John was the reality. Presenting that reality to them. And Caesar is not the reality. They were, they were to trust that Jesus was who would endure. Right? Now, for us, back to the blind spot thing. Romans 12, there's a reason why we taught in Romans and then we taught in Revelation. When we talked about Romans, we talked about living in peace in the midst of empire. And there was a passage out of Romans 12 that talked about uh, conforming to the patterns of this world. Very familiar passage for many of us who grew up in church. And this idea of not conforming to the patterns of this world. And, and we read uh, the house church in Laodicea was becoming like their surroundings, right? Neither hot nor cold. And so the question for us is how are we in danger of just becoming like our surroundings as followers of Jesus. Um, and it forces us to ask questions like, where are we colluding with the demonic energy of our world? 
you remember that passage in, in Jesus' life? There was this interesting, they tried to get Jesus, they tried to trap him, and someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, are we to pay taxes to Caesar? You remember this? It was a really cool passage because what's interesting is they're actually in the temple. They're actually in the temple, and, and there's this kind of tra- trap they're laying for Jesus. And one of them is, um, if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then we can get him because he's trying to do like this revolution. And if he says, do pay taxes to Caesar, then we can get him because he's saying that, you know, we should, you know, in a sense, go along with Caesar. And so what does he do? Do you guys remember this? He asks for a coin. You guys are tracking with me, right? What's interesting was you're not allowed to have a coin on temple grounds. Somebody had one, which is kind of funny. It's kind of like already it's like a dualistic thing, right? Someone whips out a coin, gives it, and he's like, whose image is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But the whole point is that you and I are image bearers of God. And that's what Jesus is getting at. So today we're going to engage in a little bit of a, another political act of resistance. And restoration, just remember, no one is singing songs to Caesar anymore. Not even people that live in Rome No one's worshiping Caesar. The very stupid, goofy Christian joke is Caesar's just a salad now. (laughs) But, But understand, nobody is still worshiping Caesar. But we're all tempted to worship other things. You and I, according to scriptures, are being built into a temple of living stones. And that's what Scripture calls us. We're, we're, we're to sustain our allegiance to Jesus by gathering. We are a tiny minority community committed to following the ways of Jesus, the crucified Messiah. We'll get into that next week. And we do that in defiance of the powers around us. And the way way we sustain ourselves is by sharing a meal and declaring that Jesus is Lord and everything else is not. And so this morning, what's going to happen is I'm going to invite the worship team up. We are backloading our gathering with music worship. And what's going to happen is, is you are invited to the table, and the table's going to be a little different. It's on my right and left. And over the next three or four songs, come when you're ready. But, but what I want you to do is deeply reflect on your allegiances and how easy it is to go along to get along. And how easy it is for us to just kind of be sucked into the tyranny of fear. So, like, if, <laughs> if you're the first century church hearing this letter and you're probably thinking to yourself, like, they're probably surprised to, to, to hear that Caesar was not on the throne. Maybe. Maybe there's something for you that if you're honest, has been on the throne. And typically how this shows up is fear. Like, what are you most fearful of? Or what are you most spending most of your time focused on? Um, Are you focused mostly on security in your life? Are you focused on the economy? Are you focused on who's in power and who you want to be in power in our country? Are you focused on uh, the market? 
real estate? And are my investments going up or down? Are you focused on what are you, what is gripping your focus? That might be what's on the throne. And so in defiance of that, whatever that is, we take the bread and the cup. We remember a crucified Messiah who is pictured as the lamb who was slain, but as John who hears a lion turns and sees a lamb who was slain, and we'll talk about that next week. A crucified Messiah, not a conquering Messiah, not a powerful um, make-you-bow-down Messiah, but a crucified, suffering Messiah. And so let this be a time of reflection. Let it be a time of changing your allegiances and come to the table repenting of those allegiances. And let just be a place, I mean, if you want to stand and worship, maybe you want to walk around, maybe you want to sit, maybe you want to kneel, but just come when you're ready to take the bread and the cup. Let me pray. Jesus, we are uh, rethinking our loves and our worship around this incredible picture of your throne in the center of the universe. That all the things that have been occupying throne status in our hearts are nothing. That you are the one that brings peace. Not any human being, not any political structure, not any economic security. You are the one that brings peace. And let us worship you with our, with our song. Let us worship you with our lives as we come to the table. Amen.